This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Frankie Day, who's a writer in her free time. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with her puppy and a middle-aged man named Claudio Simonetti. Frankie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Tell me two things about your puppy right now. They are very cute and they are kind of naughty. That is exactly uh, as it should be. That is exactly what I want in a puppy situation. Oh, yeah, of course. That is the thing about puppies. If you have a full-grown dog, it's like, I mean, they're fun. They're great. But puppies get into trouble. They're running around. It's Every great. so often. Yeah. How's your, <laughs> how's your middle-aged man? How's he doing? He's good. He, is, he was with me before, but he's gone now. I don't know where he got off to. Um, but uh, he was in the room. I don't know. He just kind of wandered off, well, as they do. I hope that he, wherever he is, he's <laughs> safe and warm and in a comfortable environment. Yeah, he's probably just downstairs. Yeah, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable mm-hmm. place for him to be. Um, <laughs> well, I am really looking forward to uh, answering some questions together today and just generally uh, helping other people to improve their lives. Do you have anything like off the top of your head that you're sort of hoping to accomplish today? So I've been thinking about that and I really, just to start, I want to say that you have taught me a lot about just being like radically empathetic to other people. Ooh, Ooh, I'm radically (sighs) empathetic. I love this. You know, I always, I used to read Dear Prudence and I, I still do. And I read it and I'd read the question and I'd think, oh, this is how I would respond. And then I'd read your response and I'd be like, oh, that is so kind. That oh. is so wonderful. And so I think I've learned a lot about really being empathetic and thinking about things from another person's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I hope to use that skill today. And of course, I've been in therapy for the past year and a half, which has helped a lot. Well, that is fabulous. And now that I am as full of myself as I could possibly be, uh, I think this is a beautiful moment to start answering questions. Would you mind reading our first letter? Absolutely. Subject, wishing for support. I am an educated, middle-class, single woman with a stable job. I recently earned a promotion that came with a raise that made it possible for me to adopt a child. I have been interested in adopting since I was a teenager. I'm now in my mid-30s. I love children, work in higher education, previously as a K-12 educator, and nannied during grad school. Plus, all three of my sisters have kids, and I have good relationships with all of them. I'm often the default babysitter at family functions. But when I asked my father and eldest sister to write letters of recommendation for the adoption process, they both said no. I've kept them in the loop about my plan to adopt over the last year, so I know they weren't surprised by the request. Based on our previous conversations, I had no idea they would be unsupportive. My dad told me he didn't believe that single parents could care for their kids and hold down jobs, and basically insinuated that I'd lose my job and be ruined if I adopted. He told me I was making a huge mistake. My sister told me that it wasn't the right time to adopt and that I should have a biological child since I wasn't too old. 
She also said that I had planned enough for how hard parenting is and criticized my plan to rely on the support of friends. I was extremely hurt by this. While my dad eventually apologized for the language he used, neither he nor my sister have reversed their decision. I always thought we were close, but it feels like they don't understand anything about me. I have the means and stability to take care of a child, even if it is by myself. How do I interact with people I feel have betrayed me? Is it okay for me to distance myself? Is it petty to avoid family events or vacations? I feel like I'm being a bad sister or daughter. Last, do I allow them to have a relationship with my child once I have adopted? What am I supposed to do? Oh, man, you know, I I feel so back and forth on this one because part of me feels just very like I want to be with the letter writer, like in her hurt feelings and kind of Mm -hmm. tend to that. And then there's another part of me that wants to like stay really practical and just figure out like, well, you got an answer. It wasn't the one that you were hoping for, but like, you know. You, you got the information you need. How do you move ahead? And I'm not quite sure which one would be the most useful one to start with. Do you have any kind of opening thoughts or feelings on this one? I feel very similarly for this letter writer. I feel like they have put themselves out there with their family. They're doing something that is could be considered non-traditional. And they were hoping for support that they didn't get. And so in a lot of ways, that can be really hurtful. Um, I think you're right. I think that they probably have a couple of ways to move forward with this information. It will just depend on how they really want to go forward with it, how they feel that they will be best serving their plans and their future child in however they manage it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just also really feel for this letter writer. So I guess I am going to be starting with feelings um, in, in terms of you know, some of that front-loading information, part of that was just sort of like she was doing for us the sort of spiel that she's been preparing for the adoption agencies, right? Which is like, here are my qualifications. Mm -hmm. Here's how you know I'm not totally naive. Here's my experience with kids. Um, But I I think especially that line about like, I'm the default babysitter at family functions really speaks to some of the like pain here, which is like, I'm good enough to take care of everybody else's kids that they you know, didn't have to invite anyone else's feedback on, you know, presumably none of your siblings or other relatives when they got married or had kids or got pregnant, invited anyone, needed anyone else to like weigh in. So that it's like they also got to go through having kids in the way that the family doesn't question, whereas you, you do have to. And not only do you have to go through it, they decided to really take that opportunity to just weigh in um, and how painful that can be, especially on top of like, I've really like shown up for you guys when it comes to helping to raise your kids. And that makes it additionally painful that you wouldn't, you know, reciprocate. So letter writer, I just, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think for for me, at least where I would start with this is, you know, again, I want to encourage this letter writer to find like useful, productive uh, avenues for her feelings rather than just encourage her to like be mad forever. But Certainly, I think, letter writer, it makes a lot of sense that you're hurt and angry, not least because you've been talking to your sister and your dad about your plan to adopt over the last year. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. So again, I understand it's not like there's never a great time to say like, by the way, I don't think you should do this. But they, at at the very least, they had time to let you know that they weren't going to be able to write the letters. Like you still, I think, would have been understandably hurt by that and and I think would have every right to be and to consider their like 
concerns fairly, I don't know, flimsy, but they they definitely could have spared you some of the like legwork and embarrassment of of getting to the stage where you were asking them for those letters of recommendation. They could have said three months ago when you brought it up for the first time that, hey, I'll be asking you for a letter of recommendation later. Um, I won't be able to do that. I'm really sorry. We're probably going to have a weird fight now, but I'm just letting you know in advance, you should ask somebody else. Um, and so I'm sorry that they didn't do that. I'm also sorry. Like, I don't think they should have said no. I think that's like pretty fucked up to say like no single parent has ever held down a job and raised kids. Cause it's also just like, is, what year is this? Like, right. did Murphy Brown never happen <laughs> in your family? Um, like there's a lot of single parents in the world and there have been a lot of sing- like, it's it's single parents have been a thing for a pretty long time. I don't know. That part just felt so funny to me. But even if they had just felt like really strongly that they didn't think that was a good idea, there was no reason for both of them to really say like, and now that I've got your attention, let me just lay out all the reasons I don't think you're prepared to be a parent, right? It wasn't even just like, here's enough information to say no. It was, and now I'm getting on my soapbox and telling you how to live your life, which is just, um, you know, painful. Right. Yeah. The letter writer was blindsided and it seems like the family, it sounds like, and I don't want to read too much into it, um, of course, because we only know what she's told us, but it just sounds like they maybe have been thinking this all along and just hoping that it wouldn't come up. Maybe oh, yeah. That Hopefully something she'll else change would go. her mind. Right. Hopefully she'll meet a guy and get pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's letter writer, it's a worthy goal to want to help children who uh, are in the foster care or the or who are orphans. And I think in I think you should be proud of that fact that you would like to make a difference in a child's life um, in this positive way, you know, separate from what just and this is just to say, you know, kudos to you for actually going through the steps of starting the process and being sure that's what you wanted. And and, you know, even though your family wasn't supportive, um, I just want to say I think you're doing something that's really important and and cool and kind. Yeah, there's just, you know, I think I also I apologize. I think I left in a typo in in that sentence. It ought to be that the letter writer's sister also said that I hadn't planned enough for how hard parenting is and criticized my plan to rely on the support of friends rather than I had. Um, right. So uh, oh, my, okay. my, my bad there. But that to me is also really interesting. Like the letter writer's sister first said, you know, it's not the right time to adopt, which I, I don't understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from, I don't want you to. And I think this is a nicer way of saying it. But then says you should just uh, get pregnant and have a biological child, even though she apparently thinks you don't know how hard being a parent is. So again, I think that really betrays, this has less to do with any kind of like, wow, I've really sat down and made like a pros and con list of of your resources right now. And I just, I I know that this isn't the right moment for you so much as it is like a bias against not having biological children. And while I, I think I tend to be a little bit more concerned about like the the historically like bad practices of the adoption industry in the United States. So I don't want to like automatically assume that it is just going to be like a net good, but it also sounds like this letter writer is a fairly like thoughtful, conscientious person. And I'm sure is like giving a lot of thought to like open adoptions and, and looking for ways to not necessarily be um, 
like going after like really unsavory practices. Anyways, that's a separate kind of question. The point here is, yeah, that your sister said that I think really tells you where her priorities are, even if she's not willing to admit it. I don't think she actually is is offering the criticisms that she really thinks. I think what she really thinks is that like there's something fake about adopting a child, right? that it's not as real as import or important as having a kid you got pregnant with and that you should do that, even though there you'll still be a bad mother because you don't know <laughs> what you're doing. But apparently it's okay to be a bad mother to a kid that shares your genetics. Right, right. Yeah, it's your your birthed child. Uh, Which, I think, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, again, like when I first read this letter, I was... I was kind of shocked by what they said, but now yeah. I'm looking at it, you know, and you're pointing out the inconsistencies and it's absolutely, it seems to me that the family just doesn't want her to adopt. They're, they're yeah, just like, exactly. have a child, but if you want to- But do it the normal about, way. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I say normal with like all that I think they believe that it implies with all the connotations and that's really what's going on here. So then I guess the question for you there is, how do you want to start thinking about that while you also pursue adoption? And so you might decide like, this really hurts me and it gives me some like unsavory insight into my relatives' ideas about family. I don't really want to get into all of that right now with them. I would rather let them know like, you've hurt me, give me some space and then go focus on getting the letters from other people pursuing adoption and kind of put the rest of them on a back burner. That would make a lot of sense to me um, if you decided, like, I'm going to make time and we're going to have a big old fight and then I'll, like, you know, do the other stuff as well. That would make sense to me as well. So just take your own temperature and think, like, what sounds like something that I'm up for to me? Like, you can you can simply let them know, like, I guess I appreciate your honesty, but I don't appreciate anything else. Uh, but let's not fight about it now. Just leave me alone. Um, or you could absolutely fight with them. So that that choice is really yours. I want you to feel really free. Um, and you don't even need to necessarily fight with them in order to just say, like, I think that what you said was really gross um, and that you should be ashamed of it. And I'm going to do this without your help. And uh, I hope you really, like, I hope you really reconsider the way that you talk to people about the way that they choose to have families. Because just, like, yeah, I think it's, there's just something really deeply ugly about like I think you'll be a bad parent because you don't have a man <laughs> but it would be okay for you to be a bad parent if you had a biological child because it's just so like that's what some people really think family is which is just like as long as you maintain a genetic blood connection who cares if you hurt them or fuck them up or don't really have time for them you know as long as they're on the home team that's all that matters and that's all that family needs to be and that's just you know, a sorry way of thinking about like connection and intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. And and to your point of of the letter writer going to her dad and her sister and telling them how their reactions made her feel, I mean, you have to be letter writer. You're going to be want to be ready for them to react negatively to that and to feel def to be defensive or to be angry. Oh, you know, I would never say anything like that. That's not what I meant at all. And I hope that you can go to people who you trust and you care about and who care about you to decompress and to unravel all those feelings and to feel safe because right. that's that's tough. It's really tough, especially because if you I mean, and it seems from your letter that you, you know, you care about these folks deeply. And it's hard when the people that you think 
oh, hey, I can, these are my family. I can trust them. I can depend on them. And they let you down in a way that yeah. is fundamentally, you know, something that you maybe can't get around or get over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to that end, you know, really that line about, I feel like I'm being a bad sister or daughter mm -hmm. by being hurt by something very painful and cruel that they said to me. Like, that's really interesting. And just letter writer, I'm kind of curious. Have you previously um, had much conflict with your father or your sister? Have you previously when you allowed yourself to feel hurt instead of just being the default babysitter and sort of like putting on a smile and helping everybody out all the time. Like, is your relationship with your family one where you kind of have to always be the peacemaker and the one who fixes things? And if you don't, you're bad. Because in that case, it might be worth kind of reinvestigating. Like, are we historically super close? Or are we historically like in close proximity when I do what they want. And this is kind mm. of the first time I'm not doing what they want in a big way. And I feel guilty because that's not how our family is allowed to work. I, I think that's a really interesting question that I would be kind of curious to, to hear a little bit more about. So I just, yeah, encourage you to give that a little bit of thought. You know, I, I'm at least glad that your father apologized for some of the ways that he put this. But I think you're putting the cart before the horse when you say, do I allow them to have a relationship with my child once I have adopted? Because I, I want, again, I like, I hope I'm mistaken, but I want you to be really alive to the possibility that they're not going to want that mm. and that they're going to continue to offer judgment, negativity, and distance if you pursue adoption as a single parent. And so I, I get why that like, that question at least makes you feel like, well, surely at some point they're going to apologize more. And once the baby is here, they're going to want to get to know my kid. But I think it's also really possible that they will always, or at least for a long time, treat your kid like an outsider, like somebody less important, like somebody who's not part of the family. And so I want you to really think about actually how will I protect my kid? And how will I look out for myself if the rejection continues and it doesn't actually follow, it's not actually followed by apology. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful baby. We can't wait to get to know your baby. Because I think there's a very real possibility that that's not what they're going to do. Sorry, that feels like such a downer. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, yeah. you know, I, 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 I don't want you to get your hopes up that they're going to want to come around. And, and so to that end, you know, is it petty to want to avoid family events or vacations you know, if it were like, maybe if you were doing it in like a, I don't know, if they invited you and you sent back an email that was just like, I'll never go on a vacation with you. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to imagine a scenario in which you could behave in a petty way. And I, I can't come up with like a really concrete example just now. But like, no, you just asked your father and your sister for help starting, you know, a new generation. Um, and their response was, hell no. And here's why you're going to ruin your life if you do. And you're like, that kind of doesn't make me want to like go on a boat with you. That's not petty. That's reasonable. That's an appropriate response to what just happened. And, and so, you know, I, I would certainly encourage you to speak calmly wherever you can um, rather than like fly off the handle and call them a bunch of names. But take this seriously. And, you know. Yeah, tell them that you've they've hurt you. Tell them that you strongly disagree. Tell them that you 
uh, hope that they learn to outgrow and set aside these like really hostile and outdated ideas. But by all means, let this affect how you how close you want to be with them. This is pretty big, serious stuff that has to do with like really basic character. And it is not like petty or thoughtless of you to let this change how you see them. And yeah, if they really do come around, I think it would be great to be open to that. But you can't come around for them. So like if they don't exhibit genuine remorse or genuine desire to make amends, um, don't do that work for them. Does that make sense? I think so. And, you know, as a, an older sister, I'm not sure where um, the letter writer falls in the birth order. I can definitely identify with the feeling of, well, I've had a feeling and and I've expressed that feeling and it's made somebody unhappy. So now that's my problem. Mm. And something that my therapist says all the time and something that I tell people all the time is feel your feelings. If you're hurt by it, feel the feelings that you have about it. And you know, the, the questions that the letter writer asks, you know, how do, how do I, is it okay for me to distance myself? Can I avoid family events? I think if they've hurt you, that's valid. You should feel the way you feel about it and let that guide you going forward. And, you know, if, if it makes you feel any better, I don't think you have anything to feel guilty about. <laughs> Far from it. Yeah. <laughs> and just again, to that end, like, you don't have to make any permanent decisions about whether or not they're ever going to meet a future kid of yours. So maybe that will help like lighten some of the, the pressure that you're feeling right now. You can cross bridges in the future when you come to it. But again, like be careful and take things one step at a time. Like there's a difference between, you know, if enough time has passed and they have apologized for what they said, but they haven't made a complete 180. I'm, I might still decide to introduce them to my child, but I'm not going to put them like on the list of people who are going to be like helping me out with food in the first couple of weeks. Or they might not, you know, like be number one on my list for babysitting duty. And again, that's not about like, oh, you hurt my feelings, therefore I'm going to punish you immediately. It's about like, who wants to be in my inner circle? Who wants to be a part of this new family that I'm creating? And who can I trust to be there? So, yeah. It's a good thing to keep that in mind as you make your own plans for the future. And I think on that note, I'm ready to head into our second letter, which is really something else. Yeah, yeah I'd agree yeah. with that. <laughs> uh, good, good. I, I like this one. This one's This one's got layers. So the subject is burdensome belongings. About four years ago, the guy I was dating mentored a college student at his workplace. This student had some issues with emotional instability, and my ex and his supervisor hoped to help them by giving them a job and being an encouraging presence in their life. As their former classmate, there in question being the student, uh, I also wanted to support them, so we met up a few times and texted somewhat regularly. Ultimately, their experience working under my ex left them feeling emotionally injured, and they ended up stalking him at his home and damaging some of his property. My ex cut off contact after that, and I did too, concerned with his safety. Prior to that, my erstwhile classmate had entrusted me with some keepsakes, including original art, figurines, magnets, and a book. They noted that they might want the option to ask for some of these things back. 
and I agreed when they asked me not to discard or give away anything that they gave me. I'm still close to my ex, so it's unlikely that I'll be communicating with this person again. Now that the friendship is over and unlikely to resume, do I need to keep holding on to these items? They're small, but there's enough of them that I'd prefer to be able to just let some of them go. That said, I wouldn't object to stowing them somewhere just in case my former classmate ever has the chance to reclaim them. Is this agreement one I should honor indefinitely? I think my favorite sentence here, (laughs) and I use the term favorite loosely, is ultimately their experience working under my ex left them feeling emotionally injured and they ended up stalking him at his home and damaging some of his property. Because, like, they ended up stalking him. Like, we ended up at the mall after the dance. (laughs) Just happened to fall into a stalking situation. Yeah, as well as like, oh, well, if they felt emotionally injured, then by all means, stalk people and destroy their shit. Like, I think almost anyone who has ever stalked anybody else has felt justified in as much as like, well, I felt bad and I blame you for how I feel. And therefore, it's cool for me to stalk you. Like, that... You, you know, you don't need to give them, you know, what I, like you don't it's need classic. to hand it to them. It's yeah. so like, well, they did feel emotionally injured. And it's like, I'm sorry to hear that. That's not an interesting or relevant point. I'm a little worried that you're going to be the weak link around keeping the stalker away from your ex. Um, so, yeah, that sentence really gave me pause. I would go ahead and when when I'm describing that situation in the future, I would leave out they felt emotionally injured, so they decided to stalk him. And I would just go with they decided to stalk him and destroy his stuff. I think that I think that covers just it. Yeah, I think I think yeah. that's I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I You know, I mean, I hope that the student in question gets some help and stops stalking people. Letter writer, they absolutely gave you that stuff so that they would have an excuse in the future to come back around, try to use you to get to your now ex. Um, That was on purpose. That was calculated. Like most people don't give someone else a bunch of like their shit and then say, here's all my artwork and a bunch of important figurines. I want you to hold on to this for maybe the rest of your life, but at any time I might come, like that's shit a Viking would do in like a, a song of old. Like that is not, that is not normal behavior. That is something that you do when you are like unstable, unwell, and you want to like create a bunch of little time bombs for the future so that you can be sure, well, if I start stalking this guy and I blow up stuff at his house, I'm probably not going to be allowed to hang out anymore. So therefore I'm going to like, leave little heirlooms with all of his like close friends and partners so that in the future I can show up again like rumple stilt skin and be like you kept a promise or like you must keep your promise to me yeah no i that's so funny because i didn't at all see that as i didn't catch that that mm-hmm. this student could have done that to make make a backdoor into the yeah. relationship, but it makes, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. They were definitely in an, a place where they were probably not making the best decisions. They were probably just looking for ways to worm into the ex's life. So it, it does make sense. Um, you know, I was going to say, I don't know. I would probably have given different, different advice before <laughs> now, before this, for this understanding of the letter. But yeah. I will say that even if, the relationship had ended on great terms and you two were, you know, friends, but you just hadn't probably really talked in a long time. I don't know. I would feel comfortable getting rid of the stuff without saying anything. I mean, I, I, it kind of may, may depend, but I would say, you know, okay, I, 
donate it or give it away or whatever. Just because if somebody hasn't made an attempt to reach out and get stuff that it's been a while that you've had it, Mm -hmm. it's probably not that important to them. And, you know, you you can think about it either way you want, any way you want, but it seems to me that they probably don't, wouldn't need it. And that's just in a perfectly reasonable, not all this extra stuff going on kind of situation. And and in that situation, I would probably say like, you can let somebody know, hey, I'm going to get rid of this stuff in the next two weeks. So if you want it before then, you can come by. Otherwise, I'm just going to leave, leave it out on the sidewalk or right. like donate it to a Goodwill or whatever. If If this person hadn't stalked your ex and damaged their stuff, um, given that they did, I would also let a writer, I would really encourage you not to say things like, it's unlikely that our friendship will resume. Again, I just, I think you could go ahead and say, I don't want to be friends with somebody who stalks their like colleagues. I don't know. That's you fair. Know, that's maybe a fair, that's a fair line to draw. Maybe you do. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, but like, yeah, regardless, I think that they did this on purpose um, and I think you should get rid of it and I don't think you should contact them. I don't think this person is like, well, I don't think it would be safe for you or your ex to try to reestablish contact with them. I think they need to continue to give you both a, a wide berth and you are not beholden to unreasonable promises that are like indefinite um, that people try to coerce you into before they stalk your partner. So throw away the stuff. Don't feel bad about it. Do not call that person. And hope that they're, you know, getting good treatment and they don't stalk other people in the future. But that's it. Real simple, real easy. Don't, don't like put some of them in storage or like hope that someday they'll arrive and like ask you a bunch of riddles and then you can like, you know, discharge your fairy tale promise. Like it's just, it's done. It's, you you don't get to, you know, it's like you, you, you could either ask me to hold on to your stuff or you could blow up my boyfriend's car. You chose to blow up my boyfriend's car so you don't get your stuff back, you know? Definitely. I think that's a very reasonable trade-off. And that's really it's really just my general etiquette, I think, uh, around stalkers of, like, your, your former partners that you're on good terms with. I think it's fair. I think it's fair, yeah. Do you have any formal stalking policies? I don't. Uh, I've never been stalked. I've never stalked anybody. Um, so I hope to that street continues. Um, I would say, I would definitely say that when you have a situation where somebody is giving you undue attention and they won't leave you alone, you have to just, you know, I mean, do you have to do everything you can to protect yourself. And, you know, if people in your circle can do that too, then you're going to be much safer. So I think yeah. bring your bringing your friends into it, letting your friends know. I think you actually answered a letter from somebody who had been stalked by somebody in their college and had that person, their stalker had used their friend group to kind of worm their way back in, um, into the letter writer's life in a way. And that kind of thing is scary. So yeah, get your friends involved, get your, in general, if you, uh, have any kinds of issues, get your friends involved and let them know and, and they'll be eyes and ears for you. How's it going? What's your general policy on advice giving? How do you feel like we're doing so far today? <laughs> How'd you come to be on the show? Tell us a little bit about why you're here. Oh, my goodness. So um, as you well know, I messaged you on Twitter, God's own mm-hmm. personal hell on earth. 
And um, I was like, hey, Danny, I love your stuff. I think you're great. I want to be on your podcast, but I don't have anything to promote. And you were like, I don't care. Come be on my podcast. And then we scheduled a podcast a recording session and I forgot. And so, <laughs> and so we rescheduled and everybody was really nice. Um, I feel like I'm pretty good at giving advice, but I don't know if I'm always good at following advice. Um, I tend to be a pretty supportive person um, and I have listened to Big Mood, Little Mood for a very long time. And before that, Dear Prudence um, podcast. And so I am, you know, I, I always think it's fun when I come up with an answer and it comes close to what you're saying. I'm always like really impressed. Totally. Like, oh yeah, like we're on the same <laughs> wavelength. Like I got it. I'm here. And um I also oh I got um your the the story you wrote for Star Wars. Uh the Star Wars book sure. a view a view a far away view or something, I think. It's on my that sounds right downstairs. <laughs> but um, you know, I've been a huge fan and uh I just love to talk. That's kind of my deal too. I love I I my mm-hmm. favorite um hobby is karaoke because i like singing and attention <laughs> perfect um so i uh i think i have i don't know i think i'm a, i was a little nervous i got a little bit of a hot neck right now but i'm cooling down i'm getting normalized i'm feeling good i think we have i think your insight into the letters too is also super uh interesting to hear cuz you come at it at a totally different perspective sometimes and i'm like whoa mm. so that's great other than that things are going well i'm in north carolina it's kind of cold, and so it doesn't feel like global warming is real for just a moment. We can imagine mm-hmm. that our planet is not in danger. Because global warming just means, is it hot out right now? Right, exactly. Which exactly. is absolutely how my sense of fear around it also operates, exactly. which is just like, am I hot right now? Yes. Then things are very bad. Uh, if not, then things are fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. So also, you, you definitely do have something to promote, which is shooting your shot. Um, at least when it comes to going on people's podcasts and just saying, I want to do this. Please let me. Listen, I love shooting my shot. I shoot my shot all over. I'm like, hey. And I was, th- my, I was, um, you know, talking with a friend of mine and they were like, yeah, you're like very outgoing and you're like good at talking to people. Like, I think you'll, you'll, you'll do a good job. And I'm like, yeah, but until I get on it, I'm going to be super nervous. But I love getting out there and, uh, you know, telling people, hey, I'm, I'm a personable person. You should talk to me in front of an audience or on the airwaves or whatever the internet is tubes. You definitely are. (laughs) I'm finding you personable at present. um, And so I'm happy to vouch for it. And uh, I think at least so far we've been giving people great advice. Do you want to read our third letter by the way? Yes. And this is my favorite because the stakes are relatively low and it's cute. So I love it. Mm -hmm. Same. (laughs) Subject dog has my name. This is a bit silly, but I'm a trans man starting my transition. I've cut my hair, replaced my wardrobe with 90% flannel, come out to my housemates, and picked a new name that feels meaningful. Let's say Doug. But before I felt ready to ask people to use it, my housemate's new boyfriend brought over his friend's dog, which he dog sits occasionally. The dog is already named Doug. Now I can't help feeling like the dog has dibs on the name. And I'm already asking people to change how they refer to me. So it feels like too much to make them also disambiguate when referring to Doug the dog. I realize that multiple people and animals can share a name. But how do I handle this? Do I pick another name that feels like it doesn't fit as well? Do I defeat the dog in combat to earn the right to the name? Do I resign myself to hearing Doug stop peeing on the carpet 
more often than I'd like and just being the other Doug. I cannot believe the thing standing between me and social transition is my roomie's boyfriend's friend's fluffy little 10 pound dog. Help? This is, as you say, super charming. Uh, and I really appreciate the letter writer's light approach to this, which is like, I realize this is not actually like going to affect my life as a person, but also I feel totally fixated <laughs> on this little detail. Um, it's, I think, a mental block. If you're like, I already feel like I'm asking too much of people by saying, hey, I'm transitioning. Please notice that. And then if I also add, by the way, please acknowledge in some way or another that when you talk to me, you're not talking to a dog, then that's just going to be like, Jesus Christ, what else do you expect us to do, your majesty? That's over the line. That's over the line. Yeah. And so I would just say, I get it. I think lots of people, when they start transitioning, even if they've got pretty great people in their lives, tend to feel something like I am getting away with unwrapping a like crinkly candy bar in the middle of a crowded movie theater where everyone else is being really quiet and like my job is to somehow miraculously make the candy bar wrapper silent even though that's not how candy bar wrappers work so it, this is a mental block um but i also think like it is going to be to everyone else's benefit to distinguish between you and the dog so it's not even like oh you're asking them to do you a favor it will be confusing for them if they don't have a way of distinguishing you from the dog they will suffer if they don't find something to to do on that front. So, like, I, I even think there's less for you to do here than you fear. Like, other people will also want to know, how do we distinguish between Doug the human being and Doug the dog? Especially because this is a, the dog that, like, occasionally comes over for dog-sitting purposes. This is, that's like, that's why I was like, this is a mental thing. It's a very tangential, yeah, that's, that's one thing I wanted to say was that, and I appreciate, of course, you know, everything else that might be at play here. But you're probably not going to see that dog all that much. Like, the dog's probably not going to be right. around that much. And it would be like if there was a person named Doug who you kind of saw sometimes. They'd be around, but their name is Doug. Your name is Doug. And it's okay, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the dog's not going to be there that often. So, like, you can start out using your new name when the dog's not there and, like, people will still get it. I mean, literally, like, people will just say, Doug the dog or Doug the person. Like, you don't even have to ask. They're going to do that. They would do that for anybody. Um, and it's not a, a favor or something that they have to do. It's just how people distinguish between animals and people who share their name. Um, you could certainly fight the dog, but, like, what honor is there in that? And you would you could win, but at what cost, truly? Yeah, and, like, it's going to be weird if somebody says, Doug, stop peeing on the carpet, but, like— it's all, it's just, that's just because it's weird to change your name. It's weird to suddenly hear a name that's associated with other things that you weren't used to previously associating with you. And that's just part of the nature of changing your name semi-arbitrarily as an adult. So if it weren't the dog, I guess like what I'm coming down to is like, it was going to be something else. It was always going to be something else. Like for a while, when I first transitioned, I was still using my old first name as my middle name. And then like within six months, so I was Daniel Mallory Ortberg at the time. Uh, some guy named Daniel Mallory, who was like a novelist I wasn't previously familiar with, like got like outed in the New Yorker as like a fabulist. Like he made up a bunch of stuff about like having cancer or something or his mother having cancer and like plagiarized part of his book. And it was just like, oh, now there's a thing around my name, kind of. But it's just like, 
only kind of, and and only because the world is full of people and things. And it, it did not actually affect me in any way. It just felt a little psychically weird. I hope I hope the name is is Doug because I think it's a cute. It's cute. I don't know. Yeah. Besides which, uh, you've got the TV show Doug, and that you know, there's, yes. there's that element too. That's a classic. But yeah, and then like on top of then, then like I just I fixed my problem by changing my name again. So that's the other thing is you can always pick a different name if you really don't want to have the same name as the dog. But of course, then there's going to be like a weirder animal that comes into your life, and you'll have to share your name with a gerbil. This is this is good. This is teaching you uh, humility. Right, an iguana named Stan or something. Exactly, an iguana named Stan. Yes, a hundred percent. And then now the, the, the an iguana that's super cool. You know, now you have to think about that. It's too much. Oh my god, yes, it's like Spuds McKenzie yeah. the dog. It's like where sunglasses everyone's like it's sitting on somebody's oh, shoulder. You know, this you don't want to live up to that. Iguana is the coolest. Oh, I wish I wish human Stan were as cool as this. <laughs> as this. Um, Beautiful. Okay, well, if you have another moment, uh, I have a, a little listener feedback from a recent letter that um, I think is actually super, super useful because it had to do with coding, which is not an area of expertise of mine. Sure. So the um, the letter that they're referring to is uh, from the Cat Kinsman episode back in on uh, November 8th, and it was uh, the coding boyfriend. So I also have a lot of anxiety and dropped out of school to learn to write code, plus my partner is a software engineer. I had a number of medical issues that meant that I couldn't complete my coursework in time and was denied accommodations repeatedly. I still can't go back on campus without having a panic attack, so I have lots in common with this letter writer situation. I had a few thoughts that I thought might prove helpful. Number one, anxiety, especially when it's manifesting as I must do the thing perfectly the first time, is especially detrimental to learning to code. Doing something sort of sloppily and then refining it is often the fastest way to solve a problem. There's a reason that Mark Zuckerberg's motto was move fast and break things, although that's not an endorsement of either Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook or of applying this model to large-scale in-production websites that impact millions of people. Thank you for all of those caveats, letter writer. Unlearning the need to know everything about a problem before I start trying to solve it has seriously improved my pace, because once you have started figuring out where the pain points are in your rough draft solution are, you can start refining it to not break those things. But trying to anticipate them often means going down numerous rabbit holes of comp side documentation that may or may not end up being relevant, and that's where the time goes. While it's entirely possible that the letter writer's partner isn't destined to be a programmer, there's a world where his speed is mostly being impacted by his anxiety, and he could be a perfectly competent programmer. Two, there are lots of options for this person to get outside guidance besides their partner. There are many web development boot camps that have especially good reputations, and while it can be harder to get your foot in the door without a degree, it's definitely possible. I'm in Canada, where some options here include Juno College, Lighthouse Labs, and Brain Station. These programs can be expensive, but a lot of them have options for a payment plan or for non-payment until you get a job with a salary above a certain amount. There's also nonprofits that are targeted at underrepresented groups since the letter writer and his partner are part of the Alphabet Mafia. In Canada, the biggest ones that come to mind is Canada Learning Code, which was originally targeted at women, but since their name change are now trying to prioritize more underrepresented groups in tech. I'm not sure where the letter writer and his partner live, but I'm certain that if they live in a big city, a search for similar boot camps or programs in their area would yield results. I realize I've just written a comically long letter, but as I've been in the same position as the letter writer's partner, I felt the need to share. 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you did share. And I'm so glad that you shared so thoroughly because that's just tremendously helpful. And none of that was information that I would have been able to share the letter writer. So thank you so much. And Frankie, that's it. I don't have any other uh, strangers problems that I, I want to uh, answer with you today. So I'm just going to release you back into the delights of, of Northern Carolina. Yeah. North Carolina. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, as always, your dulcet tones have soothed me in a way that no beverage can compare. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think we have, we really did a great job. So thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a fabulous rest of your day. Uh, enjoy the seasonable cold. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Cool. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It's not even just like a feeling. It's like everything is structurally set up to continue. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not even like, oh, we just need like better fathers in place. It's just like, well, systems without oversight don't tend to breed excellent authority figures. And, and so I, I think it can be easy for someone to hear like family abolition and think like, this means you want to literally throw my grandmother in the garbage as opposed <laughs> to like pretty radically reorient the way that we establish like networks of care and like financial distribution in the country. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.